No, I'm not talking about that interview today. Instead, we're going to Kaliningrad. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. As I say, I'm not going to be talking about the now immediately infamous Tucker Carlson-Vladimir Putin interview both because I think there's a distinct limit on what there is to be said, but also because what I do have to say, I already have said in an article in today's Sunday Times and also in a short YouTube video that I recorded yesterday, and I'll leave links to both in the programme notes. So, with considerable joy, not least given just what a massive trial watching that whole damn video was, I will move on. And instead, what I want to do is continue my episodic look at Russian regions with a little study of Kaliningrad, this distinctly idiosyncratic Russian exclave in the heart of Europe, both because of its own merits, but also because of a rather interesting crisis war game that last week was run with my input by Conductor, about which I will talk in the second half of the episode. So, Kaliningrad. Now, once it, this was the East Prussian region of Königsberg, and look, it's a territory which I know, I'm afraid I'll use English metaphors, it's a little bit larger than Northern Ireland, and with a population of between four and a half and five million, it's a slightly smaller population than Scotland's. But it's especially its location that makes it particularly important. As I said, it is an exclave. It's a piece of Russia on the other side of Poland and the Baltic states, disconnected from the national mainland, albeit still connected by rail and sea, and indeed air, routes. It was annexed by the Soviets at the end of the Second World War, and its ownership was then ratified by treaty. And from that point onwards, it was subject to an intensive period of industrialization militarization and colonization, particularly with the existing German population largely being expelled. So that more than three quarters of the population now are ethnic Russians. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, although there's a handful of activists who claim that there's a strong support for independence, particularly the uh, self-proclaimed Free Nations of Post-Soviet Russia Forum, who held a frankly methodologically rather dubious internet poll claiming to show 72% in favour of independence. Essentially, we have to acknowledge that there's no sign of that kind of specific disaffection. But as I said, I'll, I'll talk about this more a bit later. Now, before the Ukraine war and the subsequent sanctions, it was very much trying to capitalise on its location. It was a bit of free economic zone since 1996, F-E-Z-Yanta, which means amber, Amber being one of its numerous industries. And in, in fact, in 2006, Moscow had declared that it was going to turn the region into the Russian Hong Kong, which maybe means that it was going to hand it over to China, but that's a whole other issue. Now, 
The thing is, though, although a lot of effort had gone into building everything from tourism to trading ventures to industry, um, I think something like 40% of all investment in the region goes into industry, which I think is you know, fairly unusual in Europe. And uh, there are all sorts of different factories there. I think one in three TVs in Russia, for example, are made in Kaliningrad. Nonetheless, though, ever since the war and ever since sanctions in particular, things have got rather harder. The very reason why it had particular opportunities, the fact that it was on the Baltic coast, closely connected to European Union, also obviously had become a problem now, a security risk, one could say. Now, last month, speaking of security, Putin flew to Kaliningrad for a brief working visit. And in the current environment, perhaps unsurprisingly, in certain quarters, this was reported in pretty hysterical terms as some kind of taunt to the West, uh, a threat, a warning, whatever. This really was, as I say, pretty much way off the mark. And it's rather depressing when I actually have to find myself agreeing with presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who said that, when the president visits the regions of the Russian Federation, it is not a message to NATO countries. Instead, frankly, this was actually a, really a campaign visit more than anything else. Remember, we are in the run-up to the presidential elections, and although the outcome of the elections isn't in doubt, Putin has to, and indeed is, at least make the uh, pretense of an effort to be campaigning. So he went to basically cosplay one of his usual favoured roles, which is, of course, the, the good czar coming to make sure that his people are being looked after properly and castigate the naughty boyars who, through inefficiency or incompetence or corruption, are failing to live up to their standards. So, you know, he obviously he had a sit down with the Kaliningrad governor, Anton Alikhanov, but in particular, you know, he basically castigated him publicly, that's the important thing, over the fact that this uh, planet ocean, this is a rather, rather splendid-looking, frankly, spherical building that's meant to be attached to the Museum of the World Ocean in Kaliningrad, is massively both over budget and past its deadlines. So, you know, when a student raised it in what was clearly a, a pre-arranged question, Putin was able to sort of do the usual, you know, well, the money has been allocated by the centre. Why haven't things been done? And, and, and wag his metaphorical finger at Alikhanov. So, look, this was not actually about some terrible warning to NATO. Rather, it was a reminder of the importance of manual control, both in actually running the regions, but even more so in maintaining Putin's myth. For, you know, for all he says that he doesn't like having to rely on manual control to, to run the country, that is so central to his whole offer to the Russian people. In effect, what he's saying is, without me to keep the boyars in line, they will be doing even less for you. Personalistic authoritarianisms depend on this kind of myth-making and the constant reassertion of the narrative that all the bad stuff is not because of Putin, it's actually despite Putin's efforts to keep the boyars in line. So... And that that's really what was going on there. This, this is not some kind of threat. But it did, for me, highlight, I think, the three different ways we can be thinking about Kaliningrad. Now, the traditional Western one is actually to regard it as a threatening Russian bastion, kind of advanced base, nestling like a hidden knife 
in the bosom of NATO. Look, it's certainly true that for this end, Kaliningrad is often used for messaging the West. In particular, and it's been done so many times that I'm surprised it still works, when Putin wants to get our attention, he arranges for some nuclear-capable missiles, his Skander missiles, to be deployed there. And I should stress that nuclear-capable is not the same as nuclear-armed. In fact, I think it's highly unlikely they do actually have nuclear warheads. But it doesn't matter. Just simply because they could have nuclear warheads, suddenly you know, everyone pays attention, you get a certain amount of, on the one hand, uh, you know, sort of hawkish messaging in the West, but at the same time, others saying, oh my gosh, we need to you know, reduce tensions with Russia because things are getting dangerous, which is the point. So, yes, there is that. Because I think it's not just that there are these missiles, and let's be honest, you don't need to put nukes in Kaliningrad to be able to hit most Western European targets. But anyway, the point is that one of the fundamental scenarios when people want to envisage some kind of future war with Russia which involves obviously the Russians actually starting it, it tends to focus on this thing called the Suwalki Gap, which is this 40 mile long corridor between Belarus and Kaliningrad. And the idea or the fear or the notion is that Russia could launch this lightning strike through Belarus along the Suwalki Gap and therefore cut off the Baltic states from the rest of NATO. So the idea is then that they could roll into the rest of the Baltic states without any trouble. I mean, I will go into some of the limitations of that in a moment. And meanwhile, Kaliningrad is presented as a hub for what are known as A2AD capabilities, anti-access and area denial. In other words, that the long-range missiles based in Kaliningrad could shoot down planes, sink ships, and generally prevent any attempt to reinforce the Baltic states, or generally to be able to operate around the Baltic Sea area. And, well, to a degree, this is evident in, for example, the tests of the Tabol uh, electronic warfare system which has been switched on and off every now and then of late, jamming or scrambling GPS signals all across the, the Baltic zone. Not much fun for planes trying to operate there. But also, Kaliningrad is indeed, as I mentioned, heavily militarised. It's got a key base of the Baltic fleet at Baltisk, and this is home not just of a pretty substantial naval contingent, but also the 132nd Mixed Aviation Division, the 44th Air Defence Division, and the 11th Army Corps, primarily built around the 18th Guards Motor Rifle Division. And then in addition, the 7th Independent Guards Motor Rifle Regiment, the 336th Guards Naval Infantry Brigade, and the 561st Maritime Reconnaissance Point, which is what they call Naval Special Forces Battalions. And as I'm sure you can guess, yes, I was not re reciting those from memory, but had them jotted down. This all sounds pretty formidable and certainly is not negligible. However, I would suggest that the threat from Kaliningrad and to the Suwalki Gap is heavily mythologized. The truth of the matter is that the demands of the Ukrainian war have left Kaliningrad's garrison pretty much cannibalized. Yes, the, the ships and aircraft are essentially untouched, but you know, when it comes down to it, yes, they're fine for denying 
but they're not very good for taking. And actually, any kind of operation would, would require, first of all, the Russians to find troops. When 97% of your ground forces are committed to Ukraine, where are you going to find all these warm bodies for, for this sort of terrible attack? Admittedly, the idea is, well, sometime in the future, when the war is over, when forces have been reconstituted. But as I will discuss in a future podcast, we do have to, to talk more about that. So there's not really much left at the moment inside these, these uh, establishment sort of units. Secondly, it has to be said that Russia's notionally unbeatable air and sea defences have in Ukraine proven all too porous. So anyway, the, the whole A2AD concept is, is a Western rather than a Russian one. And although it looks very impressive when you see these maps with all these concentric circles showing the ranges of different missiles and such like, in reality, it would be much, much less effective. But more to the point, what to nervous NATO planners, and I'm not blaming them, look, their job is to think of the worst plausible scenarios. But anyway, what to them may look like an advanced Russian base deep in their territory looks to their equally uncomfortable counterparts in Moscow like a pretty indefensible hostage to fortune, which could actually easily be isolated and bombarded by NATO in a time of war. So the second way of thinking about Kaliningrad is actually as a Russian vulnerability. Militarily, potentially, sure, but I don't really think we're likely to see a, a land war between Russia and NATO, even though sometimes we have had some rather unfortunate, in fact, I would say downright problematic statements. For example, quite recently we had uh, the former, former Polish Deputy Defence Minister, General Waldemar hmm, Skrzypczak, I do apologise. Pronouncing Polish is not an easy thing. Anyway, but he said that you know, were there to be a conflict between Russia and NATO, the alliance would, as he put it, liquidate Kaliningrad region because the alliance wouldn't allow... Moscow to rule this, what he called, occupied territory. And the governor of Kaliningrad, Ali Khanov, replied, you know, why, why should we fight them? The leadership of the Security Council, the Russian Security Council, that is, has already responded to threats from Polish retirees. An attack on us would equal an annihilation of the enemy through an asymmetrical strike. And so that's perfectly true. I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is, yes, Kaliningrad would be very hard to actually hold but frankly, at that point, you are in a full-scale war with Russia and there'll be all sorts of other responses. But I would suggest that in many ways, what's more interesting is actually the region's vulnerability to this kind of non-military forms of warfare. And obviously, at the moment, what that particularly looks at is what that particularly means is sanctions. Western sanctions have really badly hit Kaliningrad's economy especially because of its dependence on cross-border transit, on tourism and on fishing. Now, although there are protected sea and rail links, you know, by treaty, the Russians are able to, to, to run their trains through Lithuania into Kaliningrad. And in fact, when Lithuania uh, imposed a ban on the movement of EU sanctioned goods between the Russian mainland and Kaliningrad, it then had to lift them because these are actually sort of protected. But they have managed to, to limit the number of people who can be on any one train to, I think it's 300. So, yes, th there are still connections. 
But the point is, the whole virtue of Kaliningrad was its ability to capitalize on those and also then to connect with the Baltic states, with Poland, beyond that with Germany. That's not going so well. I mean, if one just looks, for example, at the, the internationals that are shipping through Kaliningrad's ports, again, major and extensive ports, there's apparently been sort of cumulative losses through 2022 and 2023 of more than 6.2 billion rubles. $67 million, in other words. $6.2 billion. That's a lot. And frankly, that's more than can easily be made up. The Kremlin, after all, has allocated increased subsidies to the region. But the point is, it, it can't match these kind of figures. I mean, Putin, for example, has sent an additional 380 million rubles to subsidize maritime transportation. But that's just one sixteenth of those losses. It just isn't the money to make up for it. So Kaliningrad is having to retrench. And it, it does raise questions about the, the long-term economic sustainability of Kaliningrad as currently established. It's trying to look to other things. It's trying to look to, for example, Russian or even Chinese tourists to make up some of the shortfall in foreign tourists. But, you know, it's, it, it's lagging behind pretty much on all counts. And it clearly at present does not have the kind of political clout to get anything like the sort of federal subsidies it needs. And this is an interesting dynamic that I think is something that we need to be watching in the future. Because it is clear in the sort of classic the squeaky wheel gets the oil principle that the regions that are getting, I wouldn't say better subsidies, but let's say are holding on to more of their federal subsidies at a time when generally the, 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 the budget is, is being squeezed, are precisely the ones that can actually claim that without them there would be serious political unrest. So it's places like exactly the North Caucasus or the occupied territories or whatever, which raises an interesting perverse incentive. Even though governors are expected to basically keep their regions quiet, and that's one of the most fundamental KPIs, key performance indicators placed upon them by a sort of technocratic Moscow, in practice, to actually get the resources you probably need in order to keep your region quiet, you may well have to kick up a fuss or at least be able to make the case that there is a real problem at home. So in some ways, we should look at some of the claims about increased pressure for independence movements and the like within Kaliningrad, which, of course, get jumped upon enthusiastically by certain kinds of opposition Russian politicians who want to basically present the notion that, that Russia is about to sort of break apart. Spoiler alert, it's not. But also a certain kind of hawkish Western commentator who particularly also likes the idea that, in fact, the Russian people are on the cusp of rising up and, and, and breaking the Federation into lots of digestible little pieces. Well, ironically enough, it's not just them who might have an incentive to magnify the problem. It may even actually be local authorities who need to make the case so that they begin to, as it were, sound like squeaky wheels. And then there are yet more vulnerabilities for Kaliningrad. At the moment, for example, Russian passengers travelling across Lithuania to Kaliningrad, although they're not meant to, can in practice disembark at the Lithuanian village of Kena during a, a what's called a technical inspection stop. And so basically then they're in Lithuania, 
yes, undocumented, but nonetheless, they can move, take advantage of the, the Schengen zone to move to other parts of the European Union. And apparently, almost 14,000 people use this route to, to enter the EU in 2023 alone, which is almost five times what had been the figure in the previous year. Now, again, it's a question of perception here. Some see this as a kind of a mortal threat to Europe, a way in for spies and saboteurs, or indeed the deliberate injection of illegal immigrants, which is, again, a, a large and not entirely um, mythical fear, given what we've seen on the Finnish border, what we saw Belarus doing with Poland and such like. And indeed, in back in November 22, Polish defence minister actually ordered the construction of a sort of temporary wall, a barrier, along the 210-kilometer border with, with Kaliningrad, precisely because it, it said that it feared that Russia was going to try and facilitate illegal border crossings by migrants from Asia and Africa. Now, that hasn't materialized. And I'd actually suggest that, in some ways, this is actually not so much significant because of illegal migrants from, from the global south or indeed you know, Russian spies getting in. Actually, it's significant as a way out for Russians who are opposed to Putin. Remember, this is the, one, one of the many, many tragic ironies of the current situation. The original Iron Curtain was raised by Moscow to keep its people in. We now increasingly see what we can think of as a new Iron Curtain that is actually being raised by the West to keep Russians, even anti-government Russians, out. But nonetheless, if, if this is one route that people who absolutely want to get the hell out of the country and are willing to, to practically break the law and take the risks to do so, well, this, this is one, one route out, quite frankly, that has not yet been, been stopped. And that is indeed a vulnerability for Russia because of you know, so many of these people then bring with them all sorts of, of skills that Russia needs, or indeed can then join the sort of emigre, expat, anti-Putin political opposition. And that, I think, is significant. I mean, the concern at potential separatism, I don't think we should overplay. I mean, this, this Free Nations of Post-Russia Forum you know, doesn't really have much particular traction. As I said, the, the, the poll that they, they ran was, was particularly dubious. But nonetheless, it certainly is enough to make the Russians all the more antsy. I mean, it was interesting, for example, back in 2022, at the insistence of the Ministry of Justice, officials in Kaliningrad closed the Association of Teachers of the Lithuanian Language, which actually you know, was, was much broader, frankly, than its title suggested. And it certainly was the most prominent group advocating for the rights of the something like 20,000 ethnic Lithuanians still to be found within Kaliningrad region. So it's not so much that they're necessarily worried about Russians in Kaliningrad deciding to go independent, but rather they are aware of a potential, or they believe rather, that they are aware of a potential risk in the very multi-ethnicity of Kaliningrad. And despite the economic problems of the, of the area and the fact that it seems to be the sort of epicentre for all kinds of World War Three panics, nonetheless, Kaliningrad is still quite attractive. And precisely for, that, for the fact that it is European. I mean, again, to quote Governor Ali Khanov in December of last year, he said, the Kaliningrad region is consist constantly among the regions that are growing and to which people are moving. Last year, there were 13 such regions in the country, 
And along with Moscow and St. Petersburg, that Kaliningrad region is among these leaders. Now, you moved to Moscow or St. Petersburg, for example, precisely because of the vastly greater economic opportunities there, the, the social and other infrastructure. You moved to Kaliningrad not so much because actually it's incredibly prosperous or whatever, because it's not. It's, it's okay. It's middling. But rather precisely because you hope that there will be once again chances for your kind of connections to be able to travel into the rest of Europe. But also, and this is something that came up in a whole series of surveys of people in Kaliningrad, precisely because it is European. There is something about the overall culture or identity of the place, even frankly encoded in much of the architecture, which actually speaks to you know, a different type of Europe from from the Russian one. So for all these regions, reasons, I, I think we should think of the Kaliningrad region also as one which actually poses a variety of challenges to Moscow. It demonstrates the degree to which for all the national patriotic rhetoric, people still actually hanker after connections with the other, the nasty, the wrong kind of Europe. It demonstrates the degree to which economic sanctions actually are working, not in that kind of headline, direct, sort of silver bullet way that, that some people have been talking about as if it was suddenly going to change policy, but precisely in terms of undermining the overall capacities of the Russian state, in that you have a region here which is strategically important, economically in crisis, forcing Moscow to devote money that it would otherwise spend on other things just in terms of trying to prop it up. And as I said, at the moment, I'm not quite sure how successful it is. And also a problem for Russia in that it provides another one of these routes whereby people can get out. And it'd be interesting to see what would happen to flows through that village of Kena if Putin orders another mobilization wave, because people will desperately be looking for routes out. And given that the Russians are increasingly sort of automating their border control facilities, so that now the idea is that the database that registers who has been called up for mobilization speaks directly to the databases that check people as they're leaving the country. The idea is that actually if you try and leave the country through legal routes, and you, you, you have been called up, then that will be flagged at the border and you won't be allowed across. Now, the thing is, that gives people all the more reason to look for informal, i.e. illegal, routes out. This would be one of them. So that, that, that'll be something to watch if we have a mobilisation. So those are two kind of immediate ways of thinking about Kaliningrad. A Russian threat to the West and, in some ways, a Russian threat to Moscow. There is a third one, and that is... Looking forward into the future, actually the degree to which Kaliningrad could also be at the forefront of a potential reconnection of Russia to the West and above all to Europe. And as I said, I mean, this is looking forward. This is looking into a kind of essentially a post-war and post-Putin Russia. But nonetheless, this is something that could be developed precisely because Kaliningrad does look both ways, historically, economically, politically. I mean, symbolically, for example, it has rail networks in two different gauges, a legacy of the fact that it was, it was German and then and Russian, so that it has Russian gauge railways that extend you know, through down, down to, through Lithuania towards Moscow and St. Petersburg, but also actually European gauge towards Berlin.
In fact, indeed, it's not just about that. It's also that China comes into the mix. I mean, the, the, the port in Kaliningrad is on routes that would sort of basically link China to Nordic Europe via Russia. And before the war and before the sanctions, it was beginning to, to develop in that way. And I mean, part of that talk about Kaliningrad becoming Russia's Hong Kong was actually motivated by, by a thought and a hope, an expectation even, of major Chinese investment in Kaliningrad, particularly in the port facilities, to this end. And that could still happen. There is still an, an economic value to Kaliningrad in that respect. Before recent events, we also saw, frankly, that the population of Kaliningrad would be more likely to visit Lithuania or Poland than, than Russia proper. They, ha they already have these kind of connections. And even if you're just popping across the border to go shopping in a place with, 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 with different options, you know, nonetheless, that does speak to a certain kind of cultural commingling. And certainly efforts to promote tourism before the war very much were involved in playing up that, that the German, the Polish, the Lithuanian links in the past as, as well as in the present. So, you know, th this is an area that I think thinks of itself, even with the influx of Russians, it thinks of itself as much more solidly European, Western, shall we say. And, you know, however, however much one might question how far that really sort of has, has deep resonance, it's one of the reasons, clearly, why people actually continue to move to Kaliningrad. So, in the future, there is the possibility one, that one could see Kaliningrad precisely becoming once again, not simply in, in economic terms as a free economic zone connecting Russian markets with, with European markets, but something more broadly political. And to that end, it's quite interesting that although Kaliningrad has been you know, heavily securitized, nonetheless, it remains something of a haven for economic technocracy. Since 2017, the governor of the region has been Anton Alikhanov, who at 37 is something of a stripling. I mean, he's definitely part of a whole new generation of regional leaders. I mean, in fact, he, he was the youngest regional leader until, um, what's his name? Uh, Dmitry Artyukov, that was it. And anyway, became governor of the Yamal Nenets Autonomous District at the age of 30. There you go. Some, something to make us all feel like low achievers. And if we go back to Alikhanov, I mean, he was actually born in Abkhazia in Georgia, although in 1992, sort of a few months after the uh, explosion of the Georgian-Abkhazian war then, his family was forced to sort of hastily decamp to Moscow, where they had to start life anew. But fortunately, they did rather well, in particular because um, Alekhanov was actually quite well connected because his family was an, became an old friend of former First Deputy Prime Minister Igor Shuvalov. So Alekhanov, I mean, grew up in, in comfortable circumstances, but also, after all, has spent most of his life in Putin's Russia, specifically Putin's Russia, not just Russia. And, you know, he followed a pretty kind of classic trajectory for someone who's a, an insider but not in the absolute top elite graduated from the all-russian state tax academy worked in the justice ministry for a bit did postgrad study at the Plakhanov russian economic university and then he moved across to the ministry of industry and trade where he, he rose steadily he was sent to kaliningrad to administer the the economic development zone 
and then actually very quickly, just, just a year later, became acting chairman of, of the government before being confirmed in the post in the gubernatorial elections in 2017 with a fully 81% share of the vote on, needless to say, the United Russia ticket. And then he was re-elected in 2022. So, you know, one might think of him as a model Putinist, this, this new generation of elites that in some ways are being actively cultivated by the presidential administration to be a counterweight to the more established, uh, you know, the boyars of the system, the older generation who have their own power bases and, frankly, their own impatiences with the fact that Putin is holding on to power for so long. But to be perfectly honest, when one actually looks at what he says and what he does, Ali Khanov is, in my opinion, much more of a Prime Minister Mishustin or Moscow Mayor Sabyanin figure, you know, very much a technocrat whose main focus has been economic development. Now, like these other figures, he does what he must during these wartime conditions whether it's raising troops for the war or allocating funds. I mean, for example, he recently shifted 92 million rubles from Kaliningrad's reserve fund to the regional education ministry to support the families of participants in the war. But the point is, I mean, 92 million rubles isn't all that much. And and the, the interesting thing is that he has very, very clearly refrained from the kind of outspoken rhetoric or indeed the um, sort of kind of voluntaristic moves to, to put himself solidly behind the war effort. A few days ago, he was speaking at the Fifth Congress of the Russian Society of Political Scientists. And he said, we very often treat some things routinely. Well, we're building some kind of energy infrastructure or a ferry complex. But in fact, this is actually a whole development strategy. We, and he means Kaliningrad, are independent from anyone in transport, energy, and in a military sense, we feel safe. Kaliningrad, like our entire country, is at the centre of global transformations. In my opinion now, there is a reconstruction of traditions based on the approach that we propose for our future. Now, let me just decode what otherwise sounds like a bit of bland politician speak. His genuflections to the idea of global transformations, of feeling militarily secure, and in particular of a reconstruction of traditions, they essentially are Putin light. They are the necessary ticking of the box. They are the equivalent, frankly, of back in Soviet times, inserting your necessary quote from Marx or Lenin in the first page of your thesis before you then ignored all that Marxist dogma to actually talk about whatever it is you wanted to talk about. The most important thing was actually the fact that he was talking about that one should see routine things like building energy infrastructures or ferry complexes as more than just them, but as actually part of this great sort of national strategy. In other words, what he's trying to do is instead of becoming a Z-head, he is trying to wrap the technocratic things that he's been doing in Kaliningrad ever since he became governor and try and imply, no, no, this is not just a kind of technocratic management of a region. It is actually to be regarded as a kind of a grand patriotic venture. Because when it comes down to it, if we're thinking about what matters worse, traditions or economic development, it's very clear that his words go to tradition, which is in many ways Putin's political agenda, 
But his money and the efforts of the Kaliningrad government still today are going to economic development. If you look at his statements in the past couple of years, they're almost entirely dull technocratic comments about practical developments. The sort that, frankly, any greyer Western politician or or maybe a better way of thinking of it, or as the, the, the chief executive officer of Kaliningrad Incorporated might be saying, none of the nationalist pyrotechnics that others have been deploying. And he also said, in the homeland of Immanuel Kant, it's hard not to be imbued with certain ideas, certain spirits, and the desire to try to synthesize something yourself and draw conclusions. And again, I mean, apart from the fact that it is interesting that Immanuel Kant, a um, great philosopher, came from Kaliningrad. And in fact, the university there is still known as the Immanuel Kant University. But this notion of, of synthesis is still really heavily there. The, the extent to which he is still trying to see what kind of limited opportunity there may be to connect to the West. And it's an encouraging sign, I would say. You know, if the new generation people raised under Putin, very much clearly headhunted at an early stage to become the new elite. In other words, they're benefiting dramatically from the Kremlin's patronage. But nonetheless, they are clearly not all consumed by Zed frenzy. Some are, absolutely. Let's, let's be honest about that. But many others, I would suggest the majority, are not. And this also raises some interesting questions about the Russians of Kaliningrad themselves. You know, will they still stick with Moscow? Or may there be some way in the future, as, for example, with the Russians in the Baltic states, that they can find some room for themselves in Europe? That would be, I would suggest, the most corrosive thing for the kind of ethnic, Ruskimir, Russian world, imperial nationalism that Putin stands for and which may outlast him. Now, I would stress this. Look, this is not a kind of violent, confrontational independence movement of the sort um, that, that some are talking about. Instead, my suspicion is that what we may actually see is if at some point in the future, or when rather, at some point in the future, we begin to see the, the reconnection of, of Russia and the West, the beginnings of the reductions of sanctions and the like, hopefully after some equitable settlement of, of the Ukraine war. Places like Kaliningrad are going to be very much at the forefront of this reconnection. And at that point, not before then, but at that point, Russians, the Russians in Kaliningrad may well find themselves once again faced with a question as to what matters to them more. The prospect of being part of a democratic, prosperous, rights-based European bloc, or still the connections back to Russia. A Russia which you know, we have no idea. I mean, obviously, I, I, I still hold on to certain optimisms. But we have no idea quite how Russia is going to evolve, whether it will evolve positively or negatively after the war. And I think this gives us a, a point of future traction. This is one of the key reasons why I think that one of the absolutely crucial and frankly criminally neglected aspects of Western policy, and particularly European policy, is exactly continued outreach to Russians. Not perhaps a handful of cherry-picked civil society activists, but you know, trying to reach out to ordinary Russians and hammer home time and time again by whatever means possible 
the message that actually the West is not your enemy. The West has a distinct problem with what the Kremlin is doing, but that does not mean that, as Putin claims, the West hates Russians. And if we are able to do that, it may well be that actually we will see that Kaliningrad can indeed be a bastion, not just for economic cooperation and the like, but also for attempts to actually convince the Russians themselves that they need to take a new path, a new path which inevitably means moving away from this imperial nationalism. And it doesn't have to mean that they have to adopt every single EU uh, um, attitude, policy or value, but nonetheless that, you know, that they can find some kind of future which allows them to be both Russian and happy. However, if we're talking about the future, this seems to be a suitable moment to talk about some of the lessons of the conductor Kaliningrad-based uh, crisis simulation exercise. So let's have a break and let me turn to that. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Now, before I start on the second part, just a quick note to patrons. Um, as you'll remember, I asked for suggestions about ways to better differentiate between the, the different levels of support, and in particular, what else I could provide to those who are generously at the higher levels of support. I'm hoping to finalise a few decisions in the next uh, week or more likely two weeks. So if you have further thoughts that you'd like to share, do please let me know. Anyway, to move on, so this was a, a crisis exercise that was carried out by Conductor, that is the uh, sponsor of the moment of this podcast, who specialise in producing really quite sort of fascinating, in my opinion, online crisis simulations using really the information space. So sometimes it's of you know how to respond to a particular information operation, sometimes it's actually how you, you spin particular real-world developments or whatever. And they, they were looking to do a, an open, in other words, un, unsponsored exercise, and they came to me for, for thoughts and suggestions, and so I helped work with them to, to frame the overall concept of what became Kaliningrad Crucible. And very briefly, and there's uh, already, I think, sort of after-action report and, and video that's going to be coming out from Conductor, in due course, I will put links in the program notes as well as uh, circulate them on, on Twitter, brackets X, close brackets, which was set in 2028, which I arbitrarily picked as a date where it is conceivable that the Ukraine war is going to be over. I mean, I didn't want to get into exactly how, it's, how it was resolved. Clearly, it has not resolved particularly happily for Russia. But anyway, one way or the other, I didn't want this to be about, 20, about Ukraine. And I wanted this to be set in, in precisely in a time where actually sanctions had not been entirely lifted, but in which there had been sufficient progress that, you know, once again, Kaliningrad was, was an active port in which there were, there were connections to, to the rest of the world. And the basic premise is that there's a strike in the main ports. 
very much looking towards the kind of experience of Poland with the Solidarity Trade Union. And you had five particular teams of, of players. One was representing the Kaliningrad government, trying to t basically walk that fine line between representing the interests of the region and Moscow. The second team was indeed Moscow, trying to basically, as quickly as possible, reassert control. Then we also had the European Union trying to avoid a crisis. Poland might spot some opportunities here. And um, a, a private corporation, a, a fishing company, which had started to make investments in Kaliningrad and basically wanted to try and ensure that its investments were not going to be ruined. And, you know, in, in a relatively brief period, they were all in, involved in basically trying to shape the information space with all kinds of, you know, public statements and uh, encouraging the appropriate narratives as they see it uh, on, on social media, as well as behind the scenes negotiations and the like. And it's all very much within a sort of a closed sandbox environment, which creates a sort of scope for everything from news articles to social media posts and, and the like. Now, it's limited value actually talking about the specific outcomes of this particular exercise, though I do talk about them uh, in, in, in the after action video. Although I would notice how perhaps rather uh, true to form, the Russians went in very hard and very heavy, very quickly on their hostile information operations. And al although the Poles did in due course come to respond rather in kind. But rather, what I'd like to do is just make a few observations about using these kind of you know, scenario exercises as a predictive or analytic tool. Those two things are, after all, not, not exactly the same. First of all, can we use these kind of war games as predictive tools? Well, I mean, this particular one was, was, was too small and too brief to be a really serious predictive tool. And the players range from specialists to people with no real knowledge of Russia or Kaliningrad. Because again, in, in part from conductor's point of view, this was an outreach exercise. And also the fact that it was just a sort of a one-off game and really was conducted with, within a one-hour span. Well, frankly, those are both things that tend to make players more aggressive and more risk-taking. They know they have only a brief period of time in which to, to, to move the needle, shall we say, and they don't really have to care about what happens tomorrow. So I think, you know, again, that, that's another limitation of, of this kind of exercise as a predictive tool. However, I mean, I think what's worth noting is the degree to which this kind of exercise throws up a whole variety of things that may happen. And this is why, even if it's not necessarily useful predictively, and as I said, I mean, I'm not saying all scenarios, exercises are not predictive. I'm just saying this particular one. I did feel that actually it had a lot of value as an analytic tool. First of all, it was a chance to shake loose preconceptions about what would happen. Look, I could play my role in helping set up this scenario. And inevitably, I have some kind of sense of how I think things might, should, could or would play out which is in some ways baked into which are the roles people are playing, what are the, the, the briefings they've been given, what are the strategic objectives which have been laid out for them. And in that context, you know, I, I have a sense of, of how I think that's going to interact. But then, then what happens is you have the damn players get involved. Now, joking apart, that's the whole virtue analytically, because it's a chance to see what other people's imaginations can generate. 
the intelligence, the malice, the entrepreneurialism, the enthusiasm. You know, what will they come up with that I hadn't anticipated? Now, it may well be that they come up with something that I think, well, that would never happen in the real world. That is precisely an artifact of the terms of the game or, or whatever else. That's absolutely fine. The point is not to allow my own analytic capacities just simply to be dictated to by the play of the game. It is actually to have it opened up, to have a whole variety of other ideas thrown in for me to stop and look at and sometimes say, that's nonsense. Sometimes say, gosh, yes, that's entirely plausible. Sometimes to say, well, I'm not so sure about that, but it reminds me of another possibility or actually if one imagines this additional twist it could go somewhere else. So I, th I think this is really important to shake out because it's so easy analytically to think we have a sense of how things are going to play out. We need to have the intellectual humility to appreciate actually the limitations of that and these exercises with, with other people jumping in to, to add their own contributions are a great way of doing that. And also when we're talking about intellectual humility I think this is a great this was a great example and reminder of the fog of war. Everything was happening as I say within an hour. So once people had sort of got themselves up to speed with how the platform works and so forth, there was one hell of a lot of things happening. There were people posting on on X. There were people writing emails to each other. There were people sharing things on the sort of the internal messenger system and such like and all kinds of different cross-cutting ventures. And indeed, there was also the injects from the actual conductor team who had a whole series of kind of prepared developments and tweets and so forth ready to roll in response to what was going on. So it's not actually as if everything came out specifically because a player had decided it. The same way as stuff happens, and we sometimes don't know, is that because a government or a, an official has chosen it, or, or is it just one of these things that happened? So it's not just that it's a, a useful way of being reminded of all the things that you can't know, but it's also of the things you don't get round to seeing. I mean, as one of the adjudication team, I had a kind of God's eye view on what was going on. I could go and read all the various exchanges that were taking place on Messenger. And if need be, I could check whether the person who had tweeted that was a player or sort of a non-player role. But there's a limit to what I can be doing at any one time. I'm trying to get a sense of the broad shape of the game. And in the process, a lot of stuff is inevitably while I'm sort of adjudicating there and then in real time, I'm going to miss. And again, I think that's a really important point we make. We all genuflect to the notion that we now live in an information society where there is far too much information, frankly, to keep track of. I mean, look, if I go back to my brief period when I was at the Foreign Office back in the mid-1990s, even at that point, I could spend all day reading... So in other words, not write a single word, not give a single briefing, basically just simply read. And I would still not be on top of everything to which I had access. And that was in the late 90s. And that was, frankly, in, in a position where my computer was not connected to the Internet. So it's not as if I, I was reading Internet sources. I had to go somewhere else for that. In that context, these days, we are even more deluged by information. 
And we kid ourselves often that we have a sense of what's going on without thinking of the degree to which actually this is shaped by algorithms. You know, who, whom do we follow on social media? But also what we could think of almost as human or social algorithms. What particular individuals, do, what type of people do I talk to? Whether we're talking about Russians or Westerners. Whose articles am I more likely to read? Generally speaking, you know, am I in an environment in which the people around me are going to be presenting a certain kind of perspective? And therefore what seems patently logical, simply because everyone's agreeing with it, actually represents a particular fraction of the potential perspectives. You know, we, we are all blinkered by this. And again, I think this is actually in that respect, it was a very useful reminder of the, the degree to which we are operating on what is not only sort of often partial information in both senses of the word, in other words, limited and also biased, but also what we could think of as, as deliberately partial in that in order just to, to manage the information flow, we have to inevitably cut ourselves off from a lot of it. And that in turn shapes what kind of information we get. So those are just a few of the sort of the, the my, my first uh, responses, as I said, uh, more about the kind of the meta issues of what this exercise taught me about analysis and prediction rather than anything else. Overall, I, I found it valuable. I found it interesting. And I also found it fun. And it has to be said that fun is one of the most tragically underused learning instruments around, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I don't know if Conductor will be running any, any further ones, but if you, if you see that they are and you get the opportunity to play and you've got a spare 90 minutes or whatever, frankly, I would strongly encourage you to take part in it. And I, uh, one would say, well, he would say that because con Conductor is his corporate sponsor at the moment. But trust me, I mean it. And on that note of, of either honesty or self-interest, you can decide yourself. I thank you again for listening to this episode. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.